0: So before I read the gospel lesson for today, I need to acknowledge that there's a problem with it. The original text that we read in John's, Gospels, John's Gospel has the phrase, fear of the Jews. And that phrase, I think, is uh, unfortunate and inaccurate. These and These words and other words in the scripture have led some people to believe the Jews killed Jesus and then take that thought and make it into a mindset. And so for 2,000 years, the Bible, selectively chosen parts of the Bible, have been used to justify hatred and violence towards Jewish people. We see that most visibly in the concentration camps of World War II, but it certainly wasn't just there. I recently finished a historical novel about 15th century Spain called The Last Jew, by an author named Neil Gordon. And it was all about the horrible time in Spain's history when the Jews were brutally and violently expelled from the country, in part because of this mindset that the Jews supposedly killed Jesus. And that kind of mindset continues even to our day. Thankfully, generally, not as brutal or blatant, but the the hatred and the violence is still with us. My two best friends from childhood, one from fourth grade on, one from seventh grade on, are both Jewish. And I know they've experienced more than their fair share of bitterness and and bias in their lives. And sometimes I wonder, maybe I've let them down by not speaking out on things like this more often. Overall, the church historically, the church collectively, all of us, in the past, has implicitly and sometimes explicitly supported the hatred and the violence towards Jewish people, which is a sad legacy that we have today. And the irony of this, part of the irony of it, is some people don't realize that Jesus was Jewish, right? Um, And when we read the Gospels, when we get the whole sense of the story of what's going on in the Gospels, we see that it was essentially the religious and political leaders of the day who put Jesus to death, not the Jewish people. So in the spirit of that, I'm going to take a little bit of a liberty with our biblical text today. I take the Bible seriously. I wore my my Bible necktie today because I take the Bible seriously, but I'm going to take a little bit of a liberty with the text and just rephrase something. Because of the way this text has been abused over the years. So where it says the Jews, I'm going to change that and say the religious leaders, just to kind of reframe things for us, given 2,000 years of violence towards Jewish people. So other than that lengthy, important issue, this is an absolutely wonderful biblical text for us to have for this day. It's the account of Thomas and other disciples after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you've ever heard the phrase doubting Thomas and wondered where it came from, well, it's nothing to do with English muffins, and it's all to do with what you see here in the scriptures. Some of you get the English muffin reference there, but, you know, whatever. Um, and you'll, you'll learn about this today. We heard a little bit about Thomas's doubts a couple weeks ago. Um, in John chapter 14, Jesus was speaking about being the way, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas was the one who was asking the questions, right? In our reading today, he has other questions, other doubts. Now, while there's something certainly to be said for having trust in God, and there's something to be said for listening to your colleagues, if everybody else is believing something, maybe there's something to it. Maybe, usually, not always, but Maybe. It does seem a little bit unfair to throw Thomas under the bus and say all doubting is bad. (coughs) Also in this reading, as Cindy hinted at in the uh, children's message today, you'll hear a blessing from Jesus. And you'll hear it not just once, not just twice, but three times. So it must be important. So listen for that. And then finally, the reading concludes with a blessing, um, a word about life a word about life. And life is really our key theme during this season of Easter. We're talking about the abundant life that Jesus came to offer, the life in all its fullness, according to John chapter 10. And and the the gospel chapter ends with, you know, the the narrator saying all these things are written in the Bible so that you might have life, so that you might have life. So You know, the implication being, read your Bible and discover life. So it's a good day to wear, if you have a Bible tie, it's a good day to wear your Bible tie. That's what I did. So listen now for God's word. When it was evening that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you.' When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained.' But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "'We have seen the Lord.' But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were shut, Jesus came up and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe." Thanks be to God for the words of scripture. So doubting Thomas had the nerve to raise his hand and ask a question in disciple class. The naive and simple response to Thomas is sit down, be quiet, have faith, believe. Don't be a doubter. Now, There's some value, like I said, in having faith and working through doubt, but that response isn't really helpful, even if it's well-intentioned. It's pretty misguided. We've all had doubts at one point or another, I imagine. Doubts about life, doubts about God, doubts about the church. We wonder where God is in the midst of the chaos of the world. We wonder where God is, the people who have cancer. We wonder where God is in Ukraine. We wonder where God is when our life is a mess. But everybody struggles with those doubts. Even Mother Teresa, remember that? Saintly Mother Teresa, several years ago, her doubts became public. So if she's got doubts, it's reasonable that the rest of us do too. So in a sense, I want to say here today, doubts are okay. They're normal. They're part of the journey of faith. But the thing that got Mother Teresa through that time of doubting to continue the journey, I guess it was two things. One was having a strong foundation of faith. And the other was that she was part of a community. She was part of a church community. And other people supported and encouraged her in that time of doubt and struggle. That's important, to have people that support you in times of doubt and struggle. About 15 years ago, my brother John died at age 45. Suddenly, unexpectedly, it was the worst day of my life. I was heartbroken, I was sad, I was devastated, I was exhausted, it was horrible. Those of you who've gone through tragic loss know, know the feelings. I was in shock about things and not sure what was going on. I don't think I really questioned God, but it was a hard time, and I was really, really, really grateful for the church community that I was a part of. Those people supported me, encouraged me, looked me in the eye and said beautiful things, sent me nice cards, and they said they were praying for me. And I understood that in two ways. One, that they were praying that God's peace would surround me and my family and sustain us. And they were also kind of praying for me at a time when I was having a hard time finding the words to pray myself. So they were actually doing the praying for me. Through that dark time, I got new appreciation, deeper appreciation for the value of community, specifically church community. There are times when the doubts and the burdens and the hurts are just so hard you just can't do it yourself and you need other people. Community is really important. When I met with a confirmation class a few weeks ago, we went around the circle and people were introducing themselves and saying a little bit about themselves and what they liked about this church. At least half, if not most most of the group said, something about community, something about this church community, something about the community that they've formed together, something about the people in their lives, recognizing how important it is to have significant people with some substance and some meaning and some integrity in our lives. I was glad to hear that. Community helps us with doubts, with faith, with life. I want to unpack doubt just a little bit more because it's not just about the idea of doubting where's God in all of this. Doubt is also about asking questions and doubting conventional wisdom, if you will. Asking questions about things that have long been assumed. Sometimes we need to ask those questions. For hundreds of years, Numerous white Christian people assumed that slavery was okay. They assumed it was God's will because, hey, it's in the Bible. And they just assumed that. But eventually, people started doubting that conventional wisdom and asking questions and swinging the pendulum to think in a whole new way. For hundreds of years in our country, women were denied the right to vote. Women were denied leadership positions in business, in, in church, in culture, in government, in all sorts of places. Thanks to people doubting the conventional wisdom and asking questions, things have changed. And I'll just note here that I'm very proud to be part of the Presbyterian Church USA, which has ordained women to be elders and deacons for decades. And for way too long, there has been too much hatred and hurt towards LGBTQ people in our world. Some religious people cling to seven verses in our Great Big Bible and use those to justify the way they feel and the way that they act towards LGBTQ people, while they're not really noticing the full story of Jesus's life and ministry, the the, the ministry that broke barriers and welcomed outcasts and had the sense of all inclusive love for all people. The church that our confirmation class is joining today, this church has a long and healthy and good history of doubting, asking questions, wrestling with complicated answers, recognizing that we don't have all the answers. But we continue trying to find those answers, trying to learn God's love, and trying to live God's love to make it real. We're doing the best we can with that. One great example of what this church has done in the past is seen in the person of Scott Anderson, who was ordained in this sanctuary in 2011, just over a year before I arrived to be your pastor here. Scott was the first openly gay pastor to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church after the National Church changed the Constitution in 2010, I believe it was. He was ordained right here. He was part of this community. A lot of you, I don't want to say old-timers because that makes, a lot of you church veterans were, were here that day. There were some counter-protesters out in the street with their hate-filled signs. There were 10 times as many counter-protesters with love, including one 90-year-old woman who lives down the street from the church. She marched down and joined the counter-protest with a big smile on her face. So how about that? So you're at an awesome church, in my humble opinion. Scott's a good friend, and he's a pastor at Westminster Church just a couple miles from here. but that was part of a community decision. Scott was part of this community for a long time. And people worked hard for that. And people supported Scott and knew that he was a good Christian and a good pastor and called to serve in that role. And a key person in this transition, in this, in this uh, opportunity for Scott, in, this, in his ordination, was a guy named Mark Ochtemeier, a Presbyterian pastor and theology professor at Dubuque Theological Seminary. He has since retired. For years prior to 2011, Mark was the voice of what you might call the traditional understanding of marriage and sexuality. Mark, with his training as a seminary professor, was citing scripture verses and making the argument that it was not God's will for lesbian and gay people to get married, and it was not God's will, according to Mark at that time, for lesbian and gay people to be ordained into leadership in the church. He was the theological voice for the people who felt that way. Over the course of time, Mark had more and more conversations with LGBTQ people and their families. He listened. He had a sense of humility about him, recognizing that he doesn't know everything. He went deeper into the scriptures. He went deeper into prayer. He earnestly sought God's will. And he did a 180-degree turn on his beliefs and his understanding. It's pretty remarkable to think about that. How often do any of us change our minds 180 degrees? Well, Mark did, and he ended up offering the sermon on the day that Scott was ordained, and he, a couple of years later, he wrote this book called The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage. We have a copy in the church library. Mark spoke here several years ago. He's since retired to Georgia, I think. I'm not sure. But what an incredible thing. His story, to me, it's inspiring, and it's encouraging, and it's really humbling. It's really humbling to look at somebody like that who's a theology professor— for years, believing something and then realizing that he was wrong. So it just makes me kind of wonder, are there things that I need to keep learning? Yes. Are there things that I'm not getting right at this point? Probably almost certainly. So it's an invitation for all of us to keep learning, to keep asking questions, to keep doubting. And to do so in community with other people. When we don't go off by ourselves, that can be tricky. We need to keep listening to other people. And that was key to Mark's change. He was listening to other people in that transformation. The reality is that questions, questions and even doubts, can bring new life. You know, the word repentance, it means a change of direction or a change of mind. So we ask questions that can lead us to repent, to think in new ways, to see in new ways, and to live in new ways, to go in new ways. Well, historically, the church has not always been real fond of questions, right? Back in the 19th century, when the enlightenment was taking over the world, and everybody started to think in all sorts of new ways, a lot of church people weren't happy about that. Protestants, a lot of Protestants responded by talking about the uh, inerrancy of the Bible. All of a sudden, this this, this doctrine came up that everything in the Bible is absolute truth, no questions allowed. And a lot of Catholics responded by coming up with the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. No matter what the Pope says, it's absolute truth, no questions allowed. Interesting way that the church responded to that time of uncertainty when people were starting to ask some of these questions about race and gender and other things. I'm glad to be part of a church, again, the Presbyterian Church, where we welcome those questions. To this day, though, fundamentalism in all religious traditions don't really like questions. Again, the irony here is that Jesus loved questions. You ever notice that, how many questions Jesus asked? How sometimes he didn't even answer the questions he was asked, except with another question? Right? Um, If you Google this, you'll see there are dozens if not hundreds of times in the gospel when Jesus asked questions. While calling the first disciples in John's gospel, Jesus said, what are you looking for? While talking to people about priorities and possessions and purpose of life, Jesus said, why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? When teaching about loving neighbors... And after talking about that parable of the good Samaritan, the guy that was beat up by the side of the road and the two religious people ignored him and this foreigner took care of him, Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked these and other questions, and I think implicitly he encourages us to ask questions as well, so that we can keep learning and keep growing, and so we can fully experience the life that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. The good news of Easter is that in Jesus Christ we are given the gift of abundant life, life in all its fullness. So on the journey together with our questions, With our faith, hope, and love, we're doing the best we can to figure out what this life is really all about. Thanks be to God. Amen.